As a OneOuter.com podcast listener, we're offering a special discount for joining PokerXFactor.com. You can qualify for a massive $70 off your sign-up. All you need to do is enter promotional code OneOuter70. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-7-0. It's a pleasure for OneOuter.com today to speak with uh, Brian Rast, who's just off the back of an amazing World Series performance, winning a bracelet in the pot limit Hold'em event, and also the 50k Poker Players Championship. How are you today, Brian? I'm good, Barry. Thanks. Cool, cool. So, um, if we just, I usually start with background and stuff, but when we get people on that have just had such an amazing performance in a tournament or you know the World Series or whatever usually start off with talking about that so how are you feeling from that are you still on a high or is it sunken um uh, it's definitely sunken it's been i don't know it feels like it's been what like over a month month and a half and uh um kind of feels like it's back to life as usual for me i'm just kind of playing some poker games i've been focusing a lot on um, my fiance and getting her here, uh, because she lives in Brazil. So we actually were working on a fiance visa for a long time that I, I missed the main event for that we got. And now, um, she's just basically finishing up some things in Brazil and should be coming here. Um, I'm, I'm in September. So yeah, it's, it's definitely sunk in and it kind of feels like my life is, gone back to gone back to normal a little bit okay so i didn't know so you didn't play the main event then no no i didn't i did not play the main event right right okay um i've just caught some of the coverage um i'm sure they'll mention that at some point on it but i wasn't aware of that myself um i, d- I didn't read that anywhere but that sort of shows that i suppose once you've taken down the 50k players championship in a bracelet you can sort of you can call it your work done for the series sort of thing can't you well, I mean, not really. It, it really has nothing to do with whether the fact that I won the 50K. If I had not even cashed the 50K, I, I still would have missed the main event. It, it just, it's kind of more just a life priority type of thing. Yeah, family first. Yeah. So um, I, uh, in what ended up being kind of strange turn of events, <coughs> that was a little unfortunate, actually. The, um, we ended up being a little late to our to our interview at the embassy <coughs> um, on the date that was scheduled or like during the main event and the uh the embassy um rescheduled us when we showed up they didn't they wouldn't see us we were we were a little late and mm-hmm. uh so i i mean i technically could have i guess played the main event and just rescheduled it. Although, um, you know, we, uh, you can't, I just did not want to risk, you know, doing that on like doing that on my own. Mm-hmm. So I kind of missed the main event for nothing, but, uh, you know, I guess sometimes it's the thought that counts. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so if we t- talk about the, the 1500 pot limit Hold'em event first, my, my first observation was I couldn't believe that there was only, I mean, I know the series was well attended and stuff, but there was only 700, and, I say only, it's still a huge field, but 
765 people in that one. Um, so I take it a lot of the recreational players and stuff just they see they just want to see no limit hold them and pay into the one Ks and the the one and a half K you know those events. Uh, so I take it that PLO field was how did you find that tournament? Was it sort of regular faces you know from other uh, other tournaments you've played there or was there you know did you consider you had a big edge in that in that field? Um, no, I didn't think the pot limit hold them tournament was especially was especially tough or that I knew a lot of people. Um, it's a $1,500 tournament. Um, I felt like throughout the whole tournament that tables were pretty soft. Like, I felt like how that tournament, oh, excuse me, it was only a two-day tournament, or sorry, a three-day tournament with the final table basically being day three. Mm-hmm. I felt like day two, which is when you play down to the final table, mm-hmm. um, field was pretty soft. Um, I felt like that was one of my easier easier times, like playing down to a final table in a poker tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like I, I just thought that there wasn't as much aggressive play, you know, wasn't as much uh, three betting. I, I uh, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, exactly what the breakdown of the 765 people were that started the tournament. Mm-hmm. But it feels like it wasn't like an especially tough group of pros. I think there's probably quite a large number of really tough pros that might have passed it up because, A, it was, you know, a $1,500 event, so it's not that big. And, B, it was like it was like two weeks into the series or something like that. I mean, I did it like right when I got back from Brazil on like June 9th or June 10th which is kind of one of the lull points in the series because it starts off and sometimes it's a little strong like right at the beginning because there's a, like a couple thousand dollar events and stuff and, and some people come out for the beginning and then everyone's there at the end. But then there's a little lull sometimes like right right in the middle and this was kind of probably the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. So it's actually you know, one of the smallest fields for like a small buy-in you know, big bet hold'em event. Mm-hmm. So I know that people prefer playing the no limit hold'em to the pot limit hold'em, you know. But uh, but yeah, seven hundred sixty-five people for a fifteen hundred dollar buy-in tournament there is is really small. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's just it's not as many people were in town, and, and I don't think the field was that tough. No. Yeah. So um, how important was it, you know, to get the first bracelet when you were heads up with, uh, you know, another familiar fit, Alan Kessler? When you were heads up with him, was it? I know that I, from what I've read, you know, and actually I saw an interview with yourself. Um, um, I can't remember who it was with, but it was after that tournament and you were discussing your win and you, you said it, but not in a sort of arrogant way. You just said that, you know, 220000 for yourself and, you know, your circumstances, it wasn't a huge amount of money um, to to win. You've, you've had that sort of in a day before loss. You know, I'm assuming that's through cash games. So um, how much of it was, you know, the, the playing for the bracelet and was that important to you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this isn't really that private information is that I got back and I wasn't going to play the tournament. And I only played it because my friend gave me a pretty good free roll offer. So to be honest, I was only playing for like half that. Right. So, you know, um, like the truth is that, you know, winning half of that or whatever – it wasn't going to change my life. 
And uh, while it's a lot of money and I'd be happy about it, you know, kind of like I guess I said in that interview, it, I've definitely like won and lost more than that like a number of times in cash games. So I didn't feel like, you know, I just didn't feel any pressure from the money standpoint. Now, I, I guess what I did, you know, so that that just didn't affect me. Um, I did want to win a bracelet. I did want to, um, I, you know, my parents drove out from San Diego. I, I definitely wanted to win. I also definitely felt like oddly, you know, a little pressure that, uh, you know, just some of my friends would probably razz me if I if I lost like the heads up, mm-hmm. um, because you know during the match Alan Kessler was playing a little little uh, nitty, so mm-hmm. <laughs> so like in I think my friends would have just given me a hard time losing like a heads up match to Annette, even though I mean he played fine, yeah so that has nothing to really do with it, but uh, you know you know how friends can be they just kind of will look for something to give you a hard time about. Yeah, definitely. So this is something, you know, I was definitely not looking forward to showing up to cash games for the next year and having people, you know, mention, oh, hey, like, why didn't you win a bracelet? Oh, that's right. Yeah, Alan Kessler whooped your ass heads up. Or <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know. That that actually, I thought probably thought about that more than winning the money, although um, – Although, I mean, in the end, the difference between the pays would have mattered to me more, like, after. Mm-hmm. But I guess just at the time, I, I don't know. In general, I was not that stressed out about the whole thing. I was pretty focused. Mm-hmm. So I, I tried to, like, kind of clean my mind of all those kind of thoughts going in. I actually took about three or four minutes, like, right before the heads-up part. And uh, just you're not allowed to listen to your music. So before you know, it started, I, I just listened to like this, I just listened to a song, cleared my mind and got ready. And I, I, for the most part, I was pretty focused during that, the whole final table and that heads up match versus Alan. You were comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, how, let me just check the date <laughs> I had written down. So it was, you know, if that, as you say, that was sort of the first two weeks of the series, the 9th of June, um, so it's almost uh, a month until you take down the players' championship, the 50k. Now I'm assuming that that was a total different ball game then, you, even for yourself, someone that's used to, you know, uh, swings in the hundred thousand, etc. And to play 120 of, you know, the toughest field, obviously at that series, and to come through and meet Phil Helmuth, who had an amazing World Series as well. You know, regardless of anyone's opinions, he always divides people. But he had a great World Series, three seconds, and to get him heads up, I mean, I assume that was sort of night and day from the PLO event. Oh uh, yeah. By by the way, it was PLH. It's Parliament Hold'em. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that's just me. I, I definitely <laughs> agree with what you're saying. Um, I think that you know it was for a lot more money, and you know, you even though again, I I sold some pieces. But I was still playing for a lot more, you know, than I was. Um, so that mattered. The fact that, you know, I know that this is the 50K that I knew that winning the 50K as, as being like the second bracelet. And, and even though I've had a pretty good poker career, it's been kind of off the books cash game, like not in front of the public eye. Like this would change my life a little bit mm-hmm. if I win this tournament and make it two bracelets this year. And, uh, you know, 
this tournament's going to be on ESPN, and, and the final table was in front of a gigantic crowd at the main, you know, the final table table, whatever, at the World Series. and Yeah. Just the whole thing. The whole thing was different. It was televised. It was even being televised live. So, like, I, I put on Facebook and whatever and told friends and family, you know, who couldn't make it. So a bunch, everyone was sweating. Like, a lot of my people that I know were sweating me you know, even on the live stream. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a completely different ball game in terms of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, like by the way, just to bring up Phil Helmuth, I mean, I think that Phil Helmuth played very well during the final table. I mean, play with him much during that tournament, but mm-hmm. watched a couple of the hands. I've watched the replay and, um, you know, like I think there are a couple things that if I was going to be really hypercritical about the way he played a particular hand, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I'd probably say like, I, you know, I didn't like it very much or I would do it a little different, mm-hmm. but, uh, probably the biggest one versus me would have been like the 10 of clubs, the second double up I had. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's really not that big a deal cause it is heads up. Yeah, was that heads up? Did he was he called it off with a, a flush? I just dollar? I just think that he made his if he decided. I I just think he made his raise a little big. He made his raise so big that he almost he got a little trapped into calling it off in a spot where I don't think I'm like three bet shoving a range that's like he's gonna be even close to fifty fifty with. Yeah, like king jack four flop after I like reshift there for like. Four million or five million or whatever I had. Uh-huh. I just think like I basically either have a king, I have a bigger flush draw, or I mean like maybe I have queen ten. But because uh-huh. he has ten eight exactly in his hand, queen ten actually like blocks his ten pair out. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Yeah. So like he's like that might be like the hand I mean, he's in best shape against, and he's uh-huh. still you know like fifty fifty, maybe even a slight dog against queen ten. Uh-huh. So I just kind of. And that's only like one specific hand. Otherwise, so I kind of think he should have either called or made a smaller raised and thought about folding with the, the 10 high flush draw there. But mm-hmm. uh, you know what? Like that's not really that, that big a deal. It's not really that big an error. And he had a bunch of hands he played really well, I thought. He made a really good lay down with, versus me with with the king jack on that one hand where I had the set of nines. Um, it's, not, oh, yeah. it's not an easy lay down on the river at all. Top pair, yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was top pair. Especially because, I mean, you know, I was betting a lot of hands. I was bluffing. I had some three-barrel bluffs. And so, uh, you know, he read that He read that hand right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually, in retrospect, wasn't crazy about my river bet size. I think I probably should have bet, instead of 1.3 million, I think I should have bet, uh, I actually thought that Phil Helm would hit the king. And I thought that he would, that was like a good size bet. Big enough to be a bluff, that he might think it's a bluff, but and still calling it paid off. But uh, I think what I should have done is maybe bet like 800k because it was like just over three million in the pot. A bet that was small enough that he would think that maybe I was value betting a worse hand, or mm-hmm. I should have just gone all in and really gone for you know because I, I had like two million instead of 1.3, and just gone for the just gone for it all. I don't yeah. think there would have been much of a difference between two million and one point three in his mind because I think both of those bets he probably thinks he can only beat a bluff with his king. Mm-hmm. So um, 
you know, Phil Phil made a good read on that hand. You know, Phil had a really good bluff versus, um, uh, I think it's Ahmed Oasis. Or, you know, I, I don't remember how to say his first name. Yeah. But hand, that was like the, you know, they didn't show you what the whole cards were. And, like, he actually had, like, King-10 high and, like, bet a quarter of the pot on the river and got the guy to fold. Yeah. He, uh, he plays kind of a goofy style. Does a whole lot of things kind of different than other people. I, I actually, but you know, he is basically trying to play exploitative poker, and instead of balancing, and uh, he does a pretty good job of getting away with it and exploitating people, oftentimes without them figuring out what he's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure if you maybe studied some of his like kind of weirdness a little more, watched him a little more, you might probably be able to pick up on some patterns. But because uh, cause he's always changing up his opening sizes, bet sizes, all these things. Yeah. It's like most poker players try to keep some of those more consistent, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, he definitely does a lot of them for a reason. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think that it really confuses a lot of people and makes a lot of people to make mistakes for sin. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't really feel like I made too many mistakes. I, I'm not too upset about many of the hands I played with him. And in fact, even on the part where he whittled me down, like heads up, it was one of those things where when it happened in, in real time, in real life, like I was a little bit worried on a couple hands, like maybe I didn't play them right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in retrospect, you know, like one of the, like the first hand they show from our heads up is this hand where I have king nine of spades. And uh, and it's a really big pot where he raises to like two million on the turn, on a queen nine six and a three hits, and then uh, you know I I call this big ass raise out of position, basically with second pair, which is I mean I mean I have a bluff catcher because he's never raising with worse than second pair there, and in fact really for value he's repping like two pairs, so I'm I'm in pretty big trouble if my hand's not good. But uh, I really thought he had a straight draw, and he actually had 10-8. And so when a jack hit the river, I basically am not beating any straight draws anymore, other than, like, one. I'm beating, I'm beating well, 4-5 couldn't have called the flop, so I'm beating 7-8. Mm-hmm. That was the only hand. So, I, you know, I, even though I thought he was bluffing, I, I had to fold the river. It was one of those spots where then after the hand, I was sitting there going, well... Was that a bad turn call? Like, what you know, what am I doing? Putting two million in the pot with second pair there. Um, but so it was kind of nice to see on TV that I had read that hand right. Yeah. And you know, when he whittled me down, you know, like he he sucked out on kings with a seven. There was that hand. He did flop a set on another hand that I played pretty aggressive, but he still had a set. So I mean, it was nice to know that like basically he ran really well, and that mm-hmm. I, I didn't wasn't too upset with how I played a bunch of those hands, really. In fact, I was pretty happy. So, um, you know, so while it's true, and, like, even after the match, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I got really lucky to win those three heads-up, you know, hands where I had flush draws. You know, even though I was a favorite in all of three of them, you know, mm-hmm. the truth is that, like, poker luck is, like, such a weird thing. And, you know, most people will look at that and say, oh, Brian got, like, super lucky to win those three. But then... Not maybe say, oh, yeah, well, Phil Helmuth did beat Kings with A7. You know, he did, like, make this huge raise for $2 million on the turn with 10 high. And, like, you know, Brian called it with second pair 
and then correctly folded the river and Phil won like two and a half million chips that pot. Yeah. But basically by getting lucky and hitting a straight. Because I guarantee you I'm not calling two million on the turn with a nine. Like the board's gonna pair the three or the queen or or like an ace or some like some blank that doesn't fill a straight draw, and I'm gonna fold that river if he bluffs it. You know, I'm calling that turn because I have a read that he has a straight draw. Yeah. So, you know, like to, to get down from it being about even to like him crushing me in chips, I actually got a little unlucky. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of those things where I don't know, like luck is such a weird thing in poker, the way it manifests. And, you know, I, you know, while even after the match, I admitted to being really lucky to win those, I, I got unlucky to get in that position after I actually played better than I was aware of. So, you know. So well, it seems it seems it's the nature of especially tournament poker, even in something like the 50k, like someone's going to get, like you say, Helmuth A7 beats Kings, and if that doesn't happen, etc. So it's, you've just got to make good decisions. It's the old thing, isn't it? Sure, guys like you, you know, I've got to just consistently make good decisions and then what happens, happens sort of thing. I mean, as you say, you got it in as a favourite against the flush draws, and although you had three flush draws, you were still a favourite, you know, three times. Yeah. I mean, so that's what happens. You just have to make good decisions and uh, um, hope that things work out. And it's, you know, my experience in tournaments in my life has been more of the, like, typical, almost like movie story type of thing where when I was younger and I had way more of the, like, dream and, like, fantasy of, like, winning a tournament and, like, being on TV because some of my initial exposure to poker was through, like, you know, rounders and then world poker tour and world series of poker on TV. So like that stuff was, which I actually don't really watch that stuff anymore. It's been years since I really watched those programs, you know, like six, seven years ago when I was starting out or, you know, eight years ago, whatever, I watched more of those programs, you know, mm-hmm. and I even remember some of the guys who won at the very beginning, like, you know, Gus Hansen, Antonio, like showing the two aces over his head. Like, that was back when I watched those programs. And um, I always remember, you know, I, the very first time I played some tournaments, and I first kind of got a bankroll to play, like, WSOP events, which was pretty soon, but a little bit later, like, the 10K WPTs. I definitely remember, uh, you know, getting a little more, feeling more pressure, even on, like, day two of the tournaments when I'd make it, and just because it was, like, bigger for me, you know? And I had a bunch of, I you know, as my kind of career, I never had like an early breakthrough win, obviously, because I hadn't won a major event. And I kind of did feel like like I was doing better in tournaments, like as I gained more experience. But I had a bunch of close calls and deep runs and like frustrating finishes. And then, you know, finally broke through this series. And it's one of those things where, you know, now I can finally say like, wow, I feel like I had some experience under my belt and, you know, been in some of these situations before, you know, I had already final table the WSOP as second in chips for the 10K PLO a couple years back okay. and uh, had a, you know, a frustrating experience where I got it all in three times as a favorite and ended up going out ninth. I was the first person out. And this was the one Phil Galfond won. And actually one of the times I got it all in and lost was against a short stack, Phil Helmuth, who I had aces with something pre-flop and he had kings mm-hmm. and so uh you know he ended up i think he hit a king on the turn and won that one and uh, that, 
was at the PLO tournament with it. It was quite a, a stacked final two, wasn't it? It was yourself, yeah. Galfond, Johnny Chan, I think, um, maybe even Benjamin as well, was ben, it? In Negrano. Yeah, it was an amazing final two. Well, that was just, was that two years ago? Yeah, I think it was yeah. two years ago, yes. I remember watching that on the live stream um, when they first started the live stream. Uh, someone was covering it. You know, it wasn't ESPN, but it was they had a live stream of that, um, or maybe like delayed half an hour or something. And I remember staying up to watch that. You know, even in the UK because the final table was just you know, amazing. Uh, the one Galfond won. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was pretty. You know, it was it was a pretty stacked final table. I had played with a lot of the guys before because I had been playing some nosebleed PLO at the time. And, you know, even the guys who weren't as famous, like I would say probably Phil Galfond, me, and this other guy, Adam Hurani, and uh, this other guy, Kirill Garazimov. Like, none of us were, like, multiple bracelet winner or whatever, like the other guys. But mm-hmm. basically all of us were, like, you know, I, I don't know as much about Kirill, but the other three of us all played, like, cash PLO all the time on the internet. Like, Adam Harani had transitioned to being, he was like a cash game PLO player who who um, basically after that World Series went on for the next year and won a decent amount playing like nosebleed PLO on on Full Tilt and Stars but had been playing like 25-50 and 50-100, which is like pretty pretty decent stakes. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously Phil Galfon had already been like crushing people for a long time playing really big and you know i you know i had been playing pretty big and i know Kirill had, had i think he played cash although i'm not as quite as sure about him but yeah basically everybody was either like a really big time multiple bracelet winner or, or like one of the better cash game PLO players it was a very tough final table but yeah this is just an example of it's like tournament poker is one of those things where i kind of learned through experience in my career like, all I can do is just play good and hope things work out, you know? Like, put myself in a good situation, try to make the good play and uh, the right decision, and, you know, hopefully I'll get lucky. And it's one of those things where, for years, I had, you know, I'd say maybe way earlier in my career, I would sometimes, I wouldn't make the right, I wasn't as good a player. I Maybe sometimes I'd be little feel a little pressure. I don't know exactly. I'm pretty good under pressure usually, but... Probably didn't play quite as well. And, um, you know, I, I eventually was putting myself in those positions more. And I felt like playing pretty well, but still not getting very lucky and not, you know, winning any tournaments. And it almost got to a point where I would make a joke. Like my thing going into a tournament for a long time, talking with friends and stuff. Because you know how, you know, poker players kind of realize that obviously there's so much luck involved in winning. But everyone's like trying to be optimistic going in because you're putting up like 5k or whatever to buy. Yeah. <laughs> so people kind of joke like, "Oh, like yeah, take this one down," or like, "I think I'm going to take this one down." Yeah. And so you know, my thing going in is I just started saying, "Oh man, I'm, I'm just like I'm never going to win a tournament, obviously." So I'm I'm really just want to get second. If I get second, I mean that's generally a pretty good payout. I'll be pretty happy with second place. I'll be. That's like what I'm going for. Like you can win it, but I, I just want to get second. Yeah. So so uh, just because it's one of those things where you just get so used to getting frustrated by them, you know. And I mean, it is it's really tough to get deep in a big tournament. Like, you know, I had some tough busts out in my career. Like, uh, I think that same year I I made it to the 
I busted seventh for the WPT 25K. I played a huge pot where I was basically tied for second in chips almost with uh, Yevgeny, who was um, ended up winning, and he just barely had me covered, and we played, um, I think the biggest pot of the tournament was all in preflop with my ace-king suited versus his kings. On right on the TV bubble with seven people left, and you know I he won, he had the kings, and I didn't suck out. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, you you get pretty a little sad after that, maybe for especially for a day or two, um, and uh, you just kind of got to move on and be like, well, I you know I actually wasn't upset with how I played that hand at all, mm-hmm. the way the table had been playing. Um, I basically thought that hand was a cooler. And uh, I'm I'm pretty sure I you know I I don't regret my play, but the point is that you know I still um, got whacked on the hand and didn't win the tournament. And you know it, it's just one of those things where I had been frustrated by tournaments for a while, and I'm mostly a cash game player anyway, so I I wasn't really ever counting on anything like this happening. So when it finally mm-hmm. happened, I was. I was, you know, pretty relieved, pretty happy, pretty, and by the second one, pretty ecstatic that now it was like two in a row. And, you know, I guess now I can't really complain about being unlucky in poker games for the next year because everyone <laughs> gives me shit about that. Yeah. So how, when you were starting out, um, you know, I had a look at your, your hand and mob. And I, I always like to, I've said this to a few guys I've interviewed. Um, remember when I, like, to, to mention Helmuth again, I went way back to his first cash. It was like in 1987 or 88 or something like that, and he was so shocked, but he could remember it and stuff as it was fresh. Um, how Was there any part of you that sort of, you know, when you're saying, I totally get what you're saying, because I, I've played poker uh, just coming up for four years, and I've played a few tournaments that are out, out with my bankroll and stuff, you know, live ones in the UK. And I, I, I take a shot at them and stuff. And like the first one I played, I remember thinking, you know, totally convinced I was going to win it, etc. And, you know, I made like the final day, but then not that. Was there any part of you that sort of doubted your game at the start or made you go and work harder on your game? Or even like some people start questioning, you know, when they're getting so deep and they're running, you know, kings into aces like it's a cooler or they get it all in and they're outdrawn. Was there any part that sort of started to question, you know, if it was ever going to come or, you know, did you just go back and work on your game? Um, I don't know if tournaments ever really made me work on my game as much just because I never played them too much. Okay. And I would say that it happened a lot more in, with cash games. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, there was a, time point when I did work on tournaments more. I mean, I would say, like, if you kind of look early in my career, I have very few tournament results. I mean, basically, I'd only, I would play when, like, the WPTs would come in town before I could afford to play the 10K WPTs or whatever. I might play a couple of the the initial events just because, you know, maybe I was been playing cash games, 10, 20, no limit hold them all night or whatever. And I like this one, my, my earliest big cash in a tournament was this, uh, I think it was like a five K prelim event that I ended up, I would play 10, 20 all night the night before and decided to play it. And, uh, you know, I like sold some of my action cause I didn't really want to put up five K. Um, and, 
played this tournament, ended up getting down to the final table, and we kind of made a deal three ways, And but I ended up getting knocked out third. Um, but I, I actually got more money than that because we chopped it three ways. But, um, the, you know, I, I remember that. Remember that pretty well, but it's kind of been the case that there, there's never really been a tournament that totally put me in a new stratosphere, a new playing field as far as like my bankroll. Like there's definitely like say that tournament helped me out, but I I never like I had already been playing some twenty five fifty before that tournament, and I had kind of wasn't at like peak net worth, but it kind of got me like basically back to a net worth I had already had. Like maybe it was peak at the time or pretty close, but it was something that I had already had before and, and played at, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so even like, even like this recent 50 K, um, I mean, I've, I definitely helped me out a lot, but it hasn't really got me anywhere that I haven't been before. Like poker can be really swinging, you know, mm-hmm. and I've definitely had like huge ups and downs playing 501 K online and like big in Macau and, so, you know, it's uh, – poker's interesting like that. And I'd say as far as working on things through my career, yeah, there are definitely a bunch of times earlier in my career when I'd go on downswings and uh, try to, you know, take a look at things, drop down, keep keep on studying. Um, although I – really for me, like my biggest breakthrough kind of came when I moved out to Las Vegas and started and made some friends, some like good poker players who were my mm-hmm. friends. Like the first guy being a guy named Greg Morris, who kind of, you know, ended up sort of going broke and, and couldn't really keep playing poker. But then second, and the guy who's st- still one of my closest friends today, um, Keith Gibson. And Keith and I um, basically ended up, talked a whole bunch of poker. And I think it's one of those things that. You like if you really want to get good at the game, if you're really trying to be a professional, you have to end up doing because, uh, you know, I read a bunch of books at the beginning, and right when I started playing, like I'm talking about really small, like hundred dollars, whatever I, I had when I was in college or at home at summer working a part time job. I mean, I pretty much started out winning. Like people who play that small are terrible. There's no basically no professionals. I don't know if it's it's tougher at the three six limit or the micro probably is on the micro no limits online than it was like seven or eight years ago. But you know, basically, like just reading books, being a smart guy, I like you know really fast worked my way up the limits. But you pretty soon you know reach like a little bit of a a plateau where it's not as hard to like it's a little harder to teach yourself everything, and you're going to mm-hmm. learn a lot faster if you have another good, really smart guy who you can bounce ideas off of and who basically this is a person who can analyze some of the things you're doing and point out mistakes that you're making that you don't even know. And this is one of the things, like I've gotten a little bit into teaching now, and one of the things that I try to focus when I talk with a student is I try to tell them like, you know, I like want to watch you play maybe on the internet or something just because you're going to make decisions that you don't even know are bad. And like, you're not even going to analyze them because everyone's going to look at like the, some really hard decision that they made in a pot maybe, or if they lose a pot and say, Oh, like, did I lose that? Did I make a mistake? Is that why was that like turn call bad? Is that why I got put in this bad spot on the river and called down? 
you know, or was that river call bad? Like, obviously, that's might be a tough spot. So, you know, it might be an error, but you're going to notice that error and think about it. Mm-hmm. But you might not even notice, like, your preflop call in that spot, like where you called the raise or, you know, and you shouldn't have out of the big blind. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just something much more fundamental like that, that a p- player is going to make that error that uh, the other person's going to look at that and go, oh, well, like, I wouldn't do that, and here's why. Mm-hmm. So if I think that's something that when I moved to Vegas and especially got more with Keith over the years, that was huge, and that, like, really took off my game. And uh, <clears throat> um, it kind of, like, bumped me from the next level to going from being, like, a, a successful cash game player but to, you know, really breaking through into some of the nosebleed limits. Mm-hmm. And... uh you know, as far as tournaments go, I kind of just played them for fun until, you know, on one of my downswings, I kind of decided to start playing online tournaments, especially all day on Sunday, as a way to control my swings. Because, uh, you know, I, I found out I could pretty much play all the main Sunday tournaments for two or 3000 bucks. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was having, I started doing that. And so during that process, I started studying tournaments more. I read Dan Harrington's books. And um, definitely improve my tournament game. But really, and I've always felt this way, I don't think tournament poker is really different at all. I don't really think it affects the des- your decisions at the table. I think for the most part, you just want to make plus EV decisions. And people talk a lot about tournament tournament decisions being different or protecting your tournament life. And occasionally there's a little bit of vig to that. But really, I mean, a tournament's a, a situation where you have a lot of varying stack sizes, oftentimes very short stacks. You oftentimes have a very wide range of um, players of different abilities. I think oftentimes in cash games you get more of a – it's oftentimes a little more uniform. You know, like if you're sitting playing a 25-50 cash game, a lot of the pros will be a lot closer in playing ability with an occasional fish who's worse. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> whereas tournaments will be – People have a whole bunch of different abilities, you know, bad players of different abilities, stack sizes, different sizes, plus annies. Mm-hmm. I think if you were to just take that situation and make it a cash game, you would basically be playing the exact same. You wouldn't be changing your situation. Like, for example, if it was a cash game and you had 10 big blinds with all, like, the big blind and the small blind and the annies and it got folded to you in the cutoff, like, you should still be shoving with probably, like, the exact same range of hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like maybe like maybe like instead of shoving with forty percent of your hands, you shove with only like thirty eight percent of your hands because you might get called a little lighter in the cash game, but only like a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Because like the guy with um, the guy who has twenty big blinds in a cash game isn't going to care because he can reload. Whereas in a tournament, he might fold a spot that's like really feels close because he doesn't want to risk half his chips. Yeah. But I mean, like, other than a couple considerations like that, it's the same game. And, like, everyone talks about how different it is. And I just completely 100% disagree with that. Yeah. So, in a, in a strange way, then, you just actually made me think of something when you said that there. Um, in a strange way, when you're more deeper stacked in a tournament, like you sit down with, a, you know, a 10K stack and the blinds are 25, 50, no antes. Are they less like a cash game because you're less likely to get your whole stack in, you know, because of the blind to stack ratio? 
I mean, 150 big blinds is stat normal in a cash a live cash game. 200, 300 big blinds. So if you're playing in a tournament stacked with like 150 big blinds, you're less likely to get it all in, say on, you know, nut flush draw or whatever first level, because either you know, I mean, obviously the way the hand plays out, it's unlikely that anyone's going to be jamming like 150 big blinds in with that. But you know, say a guy is at your table and he's of a whatever ability, and you find yourself, you know, with it with a nut flush draw, two overs or whatever. Maybe older school players like what you say, tournament life, but maybe even guys like yourself that have that are going to have an edge on the field. I mean, how big a favourite do you need to be to then stick it in on on like the first level? See, that's this is something that I this is a kind of exactly my point. I don't think it. I don't really think of poker in terms of how big a favorite I need to be in this mm-hmm. spot. I mean, my my opinion about how I'm going to play the nut flush draw has everything to do with my opponent, and this is why I'm still saying it's exactly like a cash game. If I basically think I'm playing somebody who if I – or it's a spot, like it, it depends on like the board. Mm-hmm. depends on what I think my opponent has, what his range is. But I mean, I'll play my flush draw really aggressively – if for whatever reason I think my opponent's weak and by playing it that way I can get him to lay down his hand because part mm-hmm. of the you know part of the your, your equity in semi bluffing is in getting your opponent to fold you know mm-hmm. occasionally when you do make your hand and you get paid off that's nice but you know you don't really want to um semi bluff a person that's never going to fold because then you're not you're just basically making the pot big hoping you get there yeah but uh but you know I so this is like I it's basically how I think about it. I mean, the whole goal in poker is to win chips, whether mm-hmm. you're in a cash game or a tournament. I mean, in a in a tournament, you know, there're only like slight tweaks, but you know, at the beginning of tournaments, it's way more like it's almost exactly like people regularly play cash games because you get 200 big blind situations where everyone has 200 big blinds. Mm-hmm. So that's almost that's like most cash games. And uh, I don't think in terms of, oh, I'm going to protect my tournament life and, like, not make this play that I think is really plus EV because it's going to risk my tournament. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a play at the beginning of the tournament that's, like, a little risky, but it's way plus EV. I'm just going to make it because the truth is is that in a tournament, in order to win, you need to get all the chips. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, even in order to make the money, you need to make the top 10%. And the top mm-hmm. 10% is, like, I don't know, it's like at least three times your starting stack or something, right? Because mm-hmm. if you have 100% of the people, if you go down to 50, you have to double your stack. If you go down to 25%, you have to quadruple your stack. And 12.5%, which is pretty close to the money, you have to eight times your starting stack. Mm-hmm. So just to make the money with average chips, you basically have to have eight times your starting stack. So, I mean, like, I don't think you can really be passing up plus EV situations in order to protect your stack i think it's just such a myth Mm -hmm. i don't even i don't even understand people say that and i just think that i'm like wow this guy doesn't even understand poker yeah (laughs) yeah it's just because this is what someone a good player what makes someone a good player is that you accurately assess what a plus ev situation is Mm -hmm. like the difference is you know like between a good play and a bad play you know you can like logically justify with some sort of argument any play, like, oh, I made this play for this because I thought he was going to fold, blah, blah. But what actually makes the, a play a good play is when your assessment is accurate, mm-hmm. right? When, like, you actually 
do put your opponent on the right range or you actually, you know, you know, do accurately assess what your fold equity is or something. And like, that's what kind of makes a play plus EV. And so if you accurately assess that a play is plus EV, you know, you're not wrong. And like you make a, and you should just make the play in order to win chips. Like that's what makes someone a good player. Yeah. Not a good player because you pass up those situations for another one. Uh-huh. I don't, and I don't know, like maybe Phil Helmuth actually believes that maybe not. He plays pretty well. And uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know, but he, I, <laughs> it's just my opinion. And I actually think if you look at a lot of the other really good players, I mean, that's how they play. Like I'd say one of the, the one person that almost everyone agrees is maybe the best player in the world is Phil Ivey. Yeah. And I mean, he plays pretty like aggressive. I mean, I don't really see Phil, Elm- Phil Ivey passing up situations for like future EV spots. Like the guy from what I've seen him play, you know, he's not like a complete maniac, but he'll definitely get out there, make bluffs, just even play like complete garbage in spots because it's mm-hmm. like he has good reads on his opponents and he can get them to fold. Yeah. So, you know, he's not sitting there going, oh, I'm going to wait for like a good spot later and protect my stack. He's basically playing attacking poker, and if he thinks he's got a good spot, he takes it to try to win the chips, mm-hmm. just like in a cash game. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the biggest sort of way to, to that point was I remember on um, Poker After, you know, it, it was Helmuth and someone else, and um, he says that he's the only person, him and Stu Unger were the only people that agreed that y- you could fold aces pre-flop uh, in a tournament um, if, like, you know, five people went all in in front of you. Or he was posed the question, you know, you're at the World Series, you sit down 30,000 chips, and the whole table goes all in, and you look down and you've got aces. Do you call? That was like, I remember it was like going around, and Helmuth was sort of like arguing, no, of course, you have to fold there. I, I want to be looking to get in, you know, a better spot and stuff. So I suppose it's just, is it just as simple as two different schools of poker? You know, as you say, a plus EV play, the maths, you know, speak. They they're black and white, and with this old sort of mentality and old sort of thing of the older school player, the live pro of this tournament life and stuff. Well, so here's what I would make an argument about that. So, I think all of poker, in some sense, comes down a little bit to math. I mean, you're talking about a mathematical game. The difficult mm-hmm. part, of course, of breaking things down to a mathematical model is that. It's really hard to know what it, real percentages are for things. And so let me use this example to kind of illustrate that. Okay. So let's say you're Phil Helmuth in this spot. Everyone's gone all in, all nine people. So there's whatever. You start the World Series of Poker with like 30K, right? Mm-hmm. I think the main event. So you've got to put in 30K to win 270 with two aces. You're up against nine, whatever, random hands or something. I don't know what aces equity is in that spot. Um, mm-hmm. I could maybe actually look it up really I, fast. I'll do it as well just now. Uh, I've got okay. poker stuff. I'll just give random hands to the other 10 players. Yeah, just give random hands. Actually, I don't even know if... I don't even yeah, know yeah. if I could do it. But Yeah, it's not coming up. It's got error message in poker stuff. I was doing it there. Oh, okay, we'll do it a different way. This is quite interesting. Uh, uh, I'm just going to go on the total cooler of all situations. Aces, kings, queens, jacks. Just right away. 
because poker stove just crashed when I tried to put aces yeah. against. I mean, I did aces against five random hands. Um, okay. That's all pro poker tools would do. And aces against five random hands, aces is 49%. Okay. So I don't know, against, um, my guess is against nine random hands, it's probably something like 30, maybe it's a third equity, mm -hmm. 30%. So okay. let's put it this way. You can be, if you fold, you preserve your starting stack of 30K 100% mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. And yes, you have a guy at your table, whether or not, I don't know if your table gets broke, who cares, but you just preserve your starting stack of 30K 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't fold and you call, let's say it's a third of the time or 30%. It's pretty close. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So two thirds of the time you're out of the tournament, but a third of the time you're going to have 300K in chips at the beginning of day one. Which, by the way, I actually think that's about what the chip leaders have at the end of day one. Mm -hmm. I think 10x, if I remember correctly, is about what chip leaders have. Like the guys were ending day one, like some of the top guys with like 300k, right? Mm -hmm. So, so a third of the time you will be at the beginning of day one, not at the end of day one. You will have a like chip lead stack for mm -hmm. end of day one. Of a, of a 7,000 person field. Mm -hmm. I actually think if you told somebody this way, they'd be a little crazy not to take that spot. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. So, you know, see, yeah, you're out two thirds of the time. That, mm -hmm. okay. But a third of the time that your aces hold up against the nine random hands, you aren't out. You, ha <laughs> you, uh, you have like, you're like the massive chip leader at the beginning of the event. Basically, your table's going to get filled. You're going to get to play with a whole bunch of other guys who have 30K. Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to, as the day goes on, whatever, use the fact that you have a chip lead, or the, especially the intimidation factor that that causes in something like the main event, where people don't want to get eliminated. I'd say uh -huh. in a tournament like the main event, where a lot of the, it's a lot of amateurs, it's one of the only tournaments, they, the only big tournament of the year that they play, they're not going to like want to, play big pots against the one guy who can easily destroy them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I actually think this is a crush. Like, I would love to be in this spot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> By the way, like, your odds of, you're probably just grinding up. I would bet that in Phil Helmuth's main event career, he has not gotten to 10x his starting stack much more than a third of the time in the tournament, in the main event. So in other words, I'm saying whatever they started with in that year, let's say 30K in chips, let's say five years ago with 10K in chips, I would say that for sure, just playing out normally, he half the time or almost any pro, half or even 40% of the time didn't get to this number of chips at any point during the tournament before they got knocked out. Mm -hmm. And so this is a chance to basically get there right at the beginning, like a third of the time, which is probably as much as anyone gets there by playing anyway. Yeah. So, like, you know, I just um, – this is my whole point about plus EV situations. Like, this is such a hugely plus EV spot. Like, how – it's really hard in poker to get where you can ten, nine or 10x your stack for, for, like, a third of the time. Like, mm -hmm. think about that just in terms of simple, like, cash game EV. So, you risk 
let's say you risk $30 and a 10 and you know, a third of the time you win 270 and two thirds of the time you lose 30. So, you know, it's like minus 30, minus 30 plus 270. So you're actually, your equity on that spot is plus 210. Mm-hmm. You have a one-time spot for plus $210 in equity. Mm-hmm. Like, you would actually be insane to pass that up. That's about yeah. as plus EV as it gets. Mm-hmm. Like, you're risking $30, and your equity is plus 210 That's like a 7x equity spot. Mm-hmm. Like, that's insane. You don't, just don't even get spots that good. Yeah. So, I, I like... That's my whole point is if you even look at this, no matter how you want to analyze it, just from a pure cash game equity or even from a tournament situation like, you know, do you want to be like an end of day one chip leader a third of the time at the beginning of day one to be knocked out? Like you'd be mm-hmm. crazy to say no to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why I would call with aces in that spot. And if Phil Helmuth folds, I just don't think it's a different playing style. I just think he's wrong. Right. Like, you know, he can agree to disagree with me. That's fine. But yeah. you know, I think anyone who really listens to my argument from a mathematical standpoint, even understanding skill and edge in poker will agree with me. That's just my opinion. You know, whatever. I, I could be wrong that people won't agree with me, but I will never think that I'm actually wrong in this argument. Well, one of my questions was actually going to be, what, what's your style? Are you, are you a maths-based guy? I, th- I think we've answered that. And, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying, Um I remember a long time ago, I, I mentioned in uh, an interview with um, Jungle Man, Daniel Cates, and I was speaking about the similarities between trading and poker. And I remember watching this billionaire hedge fund guy, and he gave a great um, talk on EV. It was all about expected value. And he broke it down in such simple terms. And I think that sort of helped my poker game more than any Harrington book or anything I've read. Um, it was just all about assessing a situation in terms of you know expected value, and yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, I agree. I agree with what you're saying um, on that. But like, it's you know some guys, it's it is it's, it's different styles and it's it's a different mindset. And if someone's done something for so long or whatever, it's I suppose it's hard to change you know habits or well you know, things. What, like I, what I would say is this. Okay, I, I guess instead of speaking with so much hyperbole, mm-hmm. my argument would be this to be more precise in terms of EV. I think I've successfully shown through breaking down this argument mathematically about how how plus EV it is to call with two aces in that spot, that I would argue that there's no poker player on the planet who is so plus EV with just a regular stack of chips that they could afford to pass up this spot. There's nobody that's going to play so well that this spot is less plus EV than then to, it's it's more plus EV to pass up the spot than to take it. Mm-hmm. You know, and if Phil uh, Helmuth actually thinks that he is more plus EV than this spot, um, then, you know, like more power to him. <laughs> he, <laughs> it, like, he's, I don't think he is. I don't think Phil Ivy is. I don't think anybody is. Yeah. This is like such a hugely plus EV spot. I mean, I don't know. Think about it. In terms of cash game EV, you're basically... Seven seven xing your mm-hmm. stack in in EV, you know. Obviously, two thirds of the time you're out, but the one third of the time you're not, you're ten x. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like in that's like insane. But I suppose within the tournament, what you're saying it has even more weight because the power of chips in the tournament having yeah. like you say ten times the stack 
gives you so much leverage to go on for, for a deep run. Because basically, I mean, once, you know, maybe at the very beginning of the day, it's not a ton of leverage because everyone else still has like 200 big blinds or whatever. But yeah. really, really quickly after like a couple levels, you know, people have 80 big blinds, you know, and there's annies. And, and there, you're going to be in spots where you can leverage their stack, basically making somebody gamble. And like mm-hmm. there's going to be times where people fold. There's going to, you know, and you're going to win a lot of chips that way. I mean, that's yeah. really the power of big stack poker in tournaments. And um, you're instantly in that spot. Like you're guaranteed to be in that spot too. So I actually think it's maybe even better to do this in a tournament. Yeah, yeah, that's why I was, I was so, saying it. There's even more weight to doing it in the World Series, like like he said, um, firsthand. You know that that scenario. It's, I didn't even intend to speak about that. It just happened, but it's it's very interesting and uh, you know hearing it from a guy like yourself, mathematical approach and just the correct approach, I think as well. You know, once to break it down. I remember hearing it. I think it was you know a year and a half, two years ago maybe. Um, like I said, I've not watched much TV apart from the World Series. But I just it sticks in my mind. I remember him saying him and Stu Unger were the only one that sort of agreed that you could do that. Um, it was you know if you've got an this edge and whatever, and it's so hard to quantify an edge of an individual in a poker tournament. Anyways, it is that's another thing. Which is why these arguments. I mean, I'm saying at the core, everything is about this is math because it's a closed game, you know, with 52 mm-hmm. cards in a deck. So it is an, a factual statement that at the core. Poker is math. But the difficult thing is, like you're saying, quantifying these mathematical statements because there is, I mean, it is such a complex thing that, you know, it's not easy to make a correct mathematical assessment, Mm -hmm. you know, because also, like, I'm making an assumption here that these other nine players have random hands. They might Mm -hmm. not have random hands. They might have better than random hands. And, you know, if you put in nine hands, like, assortment of other pairs and suited connectors and ace queen or something maybe mm-hmm. aces isn't actually a third maybe it's less you know yeah i had poker stove there. running there um and it's it was still going at 22 percent evaluating but against uh, kings right down to pocket fives and ace king i put for the other eight hands um it was running at about 17 18 percent okay. equity aces so now you have a different mathematical argument that i think is probably closer you know like we Probably we don't need to get into it right now, but now instead of 7xing your equity, it's going to make it a lot less mm-hmm. because you win a whole lot, you know, a much smaller percentage of the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just one of those things where correctly mathematically quantifying is is the difficult part. You know, once yeah. you make some assumptions, it's really easy to say kind of what's better, but mm-hmm. it's, the, it's your initial assumptions which always have to be questioned. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, if you get down to 17 or 16% of the time that you win, you know, maybe it's not plus EV if you, if you're a really good player, because mm-hmm. now instead of having that huge stack a third of the time, you're only going to have that huge stack less than a fifth of the time. Mm-hmm. And now it might not be worth it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it really depends on that. Um, yeah. And uh, that's, you know, one of those things. I think the key thing to take take from this sort of little thing, well, what I, I'm going to take from it certainly is obviously that situation is, is pie in the sky and is unlikely, you know, to happen. But yes. it just sets up people, it gives people a good starting block to on how to evaluate a hand or even any situation in gambling 
just from a purely EV perspective and just break it down like you have there. You know, look at what the situation, look at what the knowings are and uh, sort of take it from there and see if it's a plus EV play. And if you keep making plus EV plays, then, you know, the old famous long run, you, you're going to be ahead. Yeah, that is that is gambling and that is poker. You know, you just try to make plus EV plays. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the difficult part is, in the end, like in this one, assessing exactly what the parameters are. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, poker is a game of um, undisclosed information, imperfect information. You don't know what your opponents have. You're guessing, and, you know, that's the tough part. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if you knew what they had, it'd be pretty easy to figure out what the plus EV play is, but you don't, and that's where the difficulty of the game comes in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I am. I, I think that's 100% correct, and it's interesting that you talked about the whole trading, you know, like hedge fund manager EV thing, because I, I think that's pretty true. I oftentimes... I think day trading is maybe one of the most similar jobs to, especially online poker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like that way of thinking about things, like a trader, is really similar to poker. Like my the guy who I got into poker with at Stanford is now trading for Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. and like he could never really like he could never really sort of give up the traditional career path for something so kind of nebulous and risky is or you know what seemed really risky is like just yeah. going off on your own and playing poker yeah you know, i've always argued um with i mean myself you know i studied economics at university and finished it um i'm 27 but i, I didn't take a job either i just uh, i've not made money out of poker but other bits and pieces business and stuff and my always argument is i've had this argument with the guy that trades is you touched on it there's 52 cards in a deck you can work out your probabilities, you know, against certain ranges and stuff. You can quanti- quantify your edge and likelihood percentage, whereas in trading, it's so much more difficult to do because there's so many other factors and bigger hitters and unknown information that's out there. You know, it's a lot harder to quantify an edge in trading, whereas in poker, you can, you know, if you've got X hand, what percentage you are, you know, you know what your outs are, etc. Whereas when you're trading, um, there's so many curveballs, there's so much, you know, can happen. Yes, no, that's definitely true. Trading is, um, there is so much more information. I mean, it's it's like playing a much bigger game of poker. Yeah. You know, uh, I also think, and this is one of the reasons why I'll, I think a lot of times some very successful live players maybe aren't as successful in the online format, at least initially. I'm not saying they couldn't be. is because... Mm-hmm. I think in general, more of the online game, there's a lot more, there is more short stack play. There's more, it can be more aggressive. The pots can get inflated more and you get more all in situations in a lot of the cash games and whatever. Uh, you know, they even have like short stack tables and stuff like that. And that, that basically, you know, 40 big blind cap and all that kind of stuff. Um, to make the game a much more mathematical kind of EV, EV analysis situation, mm-hmm. you know, because once you're talking about you putting your stack in against someone's range and all that, I mean, it's really like a EV calculation, like we're talking about against whatever the range is, and you try to perceive and analyze and figure that range out. Yeah. Now, oftentimes live, like deep stack, deep stack poker anywhere, so it's not a live thing, but much more like live cash game play is like two, three hundred, four hundred, whatever, plus big blinds deep. 
You know, like you can go play five, ten games in Las Vegas with with no cap on the buy-in, and people will sit with like five k or ten k. I mean, that's really deep stacked. That's a lot of money for a five ten game. Five hundred yeah. lines. You know, it totally changes the game. And sure, your EV is important, but once like that starts happening, the game actually changes a little bit from like how you're analyzing things because it's a lot more important the logic of what's going on. And you need to, you know, figure out someone's hand range and logically what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Getting really creative in a lot of spots, you know, in weird turn and river spots after there's been a bunch of information, you know, and, and uh, it stresses like a, a different kind of making a good, a really good read on your opponent's hand range and what your opponent has in this spot based on how they've been playing, how they've been betting. And um, it definitely stresses a slightly different skill in poker. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I think is equally tough, if not tougher. So, which is actually, I think, slightly different than maybe the the trading online poker skill set. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, some of the reason why I think oftentimes online guys don't do quite as well in the really deep stack live cash games, and why you know sometimes you know the opposite's true because mm-hmm. those are those are different skill sets, really. And, you know, I, I think a really good poker player figures out both of them and can do both of them. But uh, oftentimes guys that aren't as good that have kind of gotten competent through experience once they're put in the opposite situation really struggle because you're you're really using a different part of your poker brain to analyze what's going on. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, do you do you have a lot of experience playing both live and online? Um, I originally learned the game live uh, locally, and in Scotland, there's there's not many, you know, there's a local casino, um, and there's a few other casinos across the country, and I learned live small tournaments, and that's where I, you know, I sort of got a hunger and excitement for the game, and in the last, I've just started to take online more seriously since about last uh, November, I started off playing um, Heads Up Cash and then Rush Poker on Full Tilt. And was doing well at that until sort of like Black Friday. Um, and then now I sort of moved over to uh, tournaments. I started getting coaching from um, Alex Fitzgerald, the Assassinato online. I got like a couple of coaching sessions from him and sort of just looking at that. Um, I've been like working on the tournaments and the sort of nuances of like, like you're talking, uh, shots that play I got. You know, some books, you, you read them, like, kill everyone, and it's got the, the optimal shoving and calling charts and stuff, and it's all broken down, and just sort of starting to familiarise, you know, myself with that, because I realise online, it, as you say, I think it, it's such a maths game, you know, it's especially in these uh, these turbo tournaments, etc. You look at guys and think, how can guys win that? But they're just constantly pushing this edge, aren't they? You know, they're just getting an edge and just pushing it and pushing it over a and putting the volume in. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And um, I, I think that uh, I think the charts and stuff for shoving and pushing, it's really important to understand that and, and know why, but always adjust. I mean, one of the things about anything in poker is adjusting to your opponents. Mm-hmm. And the chart like that, you know, will be 100% correct if everyone on your table is playing with that chart, mm-hmm. right? But if there's guys that are folding too much, then 
it might be right to push your other hands or if there's guys that are calling lighter than maybe what they should, then you might have to fold some hands. You know, so that's actually ends up being this whole process of adjusting is uh-huh. one of the uh, most important parts of the game. And one of the things that is kind of like the next step, I mean, like once you understand sort of what you're supposed to push and fold, then you then need to start looking at what your opponents are doing and, uh, you know, kind of adjust your ranges to, to match that so that you can always take advantage of them. Because at the end of the day, you're not trying to beat like robots that are playing perfectly or whatever. You're, you're just trying to beat your opponents that are playing imperfectly. Yeah. You know? So it's why the game's so fascinating, isn't it? Really? (laughs) So, um, what's your plans for the rest of the year then, Brian? Are you going to be at the World Series of Europe in Cannes or you're going to give that a miss? Well, I mean, my plan right now, I'm going to be in Vegas. I'm going to play this next epic poker tournament. Um, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to go to Brazil and this time, uh, I'm going to bring my girl back with me. We're going to get married in the U.S. Um, she get her, her visa is going to become a green card. That's going to happen during September. So I'm not going to, I'm pretty sure all the WSOP, E, CAN, Partouche, all that stuff is happening during that time. So yeah, I think I, it's October, um, uh, the World Series of Europe. Oh, yeah. There's some chance that I come. I mean, I would basically have to. She's technically not supposed to be able to leave the country unless you, like, apply for some special thing for her visa. I can, can imagine the red tape. <laughs> well, like, while when she comes here, like, after we get married, you know, like, you, she can't technically travel for a couple months till her green card comes. Mm-hmm. So she's supposed to wait to, to leave the U.S. And I think you can't get around that, but you have to apply for it. And I was actually going to look into doing all this um, if – you know, I had a better shot at winning player of the year. But now mm-hmm. that Ben Lamb is final table the main event and uh and he and he has like decent chips and the yeah. main worth so many points and he's already ahead of me. It's basically I mean, it's really unlikely that I could win player of the year. There's only like five or four or something mm-hmm. WSP tournaments there and I'd have to like at least win one probably. Like yeah. at the minimum win one maybe even do more than that to like get player of the year. And, and, you know, it's just, it's a lot now for me to do. I'm a person that doesn't really like traveling for poker anyway. I mean, I got to like get some special travel thing for my girl to come with me. I've got to mm-hmm. at least win a tournament for player of the year. I don't know. I'm probably not going to come, although I mm-hmm. was considering it before. Okay. So, so, um, what about the, your tip for the November nine then? It's, um, USC Phil uh, Phil Collins uh, obviously know him from online and I remember being at a final table ages ago on Poker Stars like three years ago and he was on it and um, everyone was on the rail you know he was even sort of like a big name online then and obviously Ben Lamb's having an amazing World Series who if you were to pick a guy you know from what you've seen or what you know of these players now who do you who do you think's going to take it down? Um, you know I. Damn, is it okay? Can I look at like the chip counts for the thing somewhere? Yeah. Oh, here it is. Um, if I was gonna bet on somebody, I would bet on either Martin Stask or 
O'Day simply because they have chips. I don't think that you could bet on somebody that has half. I mean, I I know personally Matt Giannetti, Phil Collins, and Ben Lamb. Mm-hmm. I don't know any. None of them are like close friends of mine, but I played poker with all three of them. Matt Giannetti more than the other two, but mm-hmm. Ben Lamb a decent amount to also. I haven't played that much with Phil, but I a, a few times in tournaments here and there, and I know his reputation. Um, they're all good players. Now the the thing is that they have between twenty one and twenty five million in chips, basically, mm-hmm. and those two guys have forty and thirty four million. And I think I've heard on reputation that at least Martin is a good player and that O'Day is a, is a pretty good player as well. And, I mean, as long as they're not bad, like they'd have to be pretty bad to have almost double the chips, especially Martin, and for you not to bet on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, just to kind of talk, illustrate a chip thing, although this is a little grosser, but... A couple years ago on the final table, Ivy made um, – Darwin Moon had about $59 million in chips, and Ivy was just under $10 million. Um, uh, Moon was the massive chip leader. Ivy was near the bottom, and uh, this is the one that Joe Cotta won. And mm-hmm. I remember – I heard that Phil, because I'm, I'm really good friends with Phil Locke, had bet Daniel Negrano – 25k on Darwin Moon to win versus Phil Ivy to win, which is uh, you know Negrano bet on Ivy, mm-hmm. and I thought that this was a really good bet. I didn't really know Negrano, but through Phil, you know, I took 25k in action or 30k in action. I think I convinced Antonio to bet on it. He bet for like the same amount, and Phil like doubled his bet, and I think we got Negrano up to like between all three of us like 100k or more before I think Negrano cut it off. He didn't, okay. he didn't want more action. I think he'd also bet a, maybe a few other people. And, like, this is just – look, I think Phil Ivey's awesome. He plays great. Um, but the truth is is you're talking about $59 million to just under $10 million in chips. And, um, you know, <laughs> chips matter. I mean, you need chips to win a tournament. Moon already has, like, a third of them or more, you know. Ivy needs to mm-hmm. win, you know, 200 million chips or something. So, sure, if Ivy has a good run at the beginning – and gets down shorthanded, <clears throat> that's going to look bad for my bet. But there's a whole bunch of times where Ivy gets knocked out and I'm free rolling, you know, or, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of things like that happen. Or Moon, just the the deck hits Moon and he just wins all the chips and is, you know, going for second or first. He has half the chips at the big, you know, really early on in the table because he's already almost there. <laughs> You know, sometimes, like, the deck just hits someone. Final tables are only, like, 200 hands or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and <clears throat> he had kind of shown a little little this or that with some bluffs and kind of playing up an image. I'm not saying he was a good player, but he was willing to gamble. And, you know, you kind of do need to be willing to gamble a little bit to win the tournament. So, anyway, I, I made this bet. And I, I just think in general, you know, I, even if – someone like Ben Lamb is maybe the best player. You know, I don't know because the truth is that I don't know enough about all the rest of the guys at the Mm -hmm. table other than those Americans. I I would say that his edge would have to be pretty significant over, say, Martin or even O'Day for me to bet on Ben versus one of them straight up. Mm -hmm. It also matters how good the rest of the table is too because if the rest of the table is pretty tough and, like, this table looks 
I think from what I've heard, because I didn't really watch much of the coverage, that it's one of the tougher tables. Like, it's got a lot of competent players. Mm-hmm. That's also, uh, in my opinion, it makes it worse to bet on someone's skill edge because they're not going to be picking up as many easy pots off the weak players. Because, you know, one of the things some of the really great players are better at doing is really take advantage of some of the weak players maybe more than a, just a competent player would. Mm-hmm. But uh, on a table full of, you know, tougher players who aren't giving chips away, you know, there's going to be – you get less of those opportunities. So, I mean, you know, I, if Martin's a good – a decent player, I'd bet on him just because he has the most chips by a decent amount. Yeah. So. Yeah, it seems that way. When I was watching the coverage, like you say, when a few years ago, you know, you've got the Darwin, etc. But a lot of these guys, it did, you know, as you say, um, you know, Gianetti, it was Ben Lamb, um, Phil uh, Phil Collins, and O'Day, you know, Donico O'Day's son, a guy that's uh, been in the main event final table before. And it just seems, I like you say that even the average player in this November nine is probably, you know a lot better than the sort of average player from, the, obviously better than the average player of the World Series of Poker Main Event, but like you said, just the competency level seems to be and I suppose what you're saying chips, you know, that is the power because with the final table and the, the blinds increasing, etc, then it is, is, is such a huge edge. Yeah, I mean yeah, I def- the edge difference has to be pretty significant, like they're going to my 50k final table um, going into the final table, the final eight, I, you know, Min had a decent amount more chips than me, but I mean, that was a spot where I think you can maybe make an argument that I was a more plus EV bet than Ming, just because Ming has so little no limit hold'em experience. And mm-hmm. if you even watched like the video, I actually think he plays a bunch of hands badly. Yeah. The Jack seven hand where he doubles me up is just pretty terrible. His call that- flop was the very worst option. He should either you know, basically put me all in or fold, folding probably uh-huh. being the best. Uh-huh. But, you know, just other hands, like there's some weird hand right at the beginning where you like three bet um, with like ace four in a spot where after Phil Helmuth limp and, and uh, like a sh- Oasis on the button raises, he's just so strong there so often that right. I just think it's a bad spot to three bet. He just had a lot of like really weird goofy hands kind of that, you know, I I think that if you just kind of looked at the skill edge, you you might you know in the end maybe pick me because I I was second in chips. I had a decent chip stack, and mm-hmm. I, I I think I'm a good no limit hold'em player, or at least assuming I am for the purpose of this discussion. But um, but yeah, you know, you really have to kind of find differences like that in order to I think pick somebody with less less chips, mm-hmm. because uh. You know, I mean, you're, we're not talking about the long run. We're talking about 200 hands. And yeah. As much as everybody likes to talk about skill and this and that, and a lot of these spots, you know, there's just, it's mostly luck. Uh-huh. You know, people are going to get put in spots where, you know, like when I knocked out Scott Seaver out of this tournament, uh-huh. got folded to him. He didn't have many chips. He decided to go all in with two eights. Now, I uh-huh. think Scott Seaver is a great player, but he kind of got stuck in a spot where he's forced to more or less go all in with his hand. You know, he could have raised, but he's never going to fold if I re-raised him. You know, I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned that hand, uh, Brian, because I, I was just speaking about that with a friend the other day. I think, did he not like open ship 20 big blinds? Yeah, he did. He open shipped it. 
What, what do you think about that then? Yeah, let's, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, let's talk <coughs> about that hand, just that open ship with the eights there. Um, okay, I think what he was doing was basically, he was in a spot where I think he felt that if he opened his hand, he would be put in a really gross spot if he got three bet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> just because our table wasn't really so active and crazy pre-flop that he could really ever be happy getting it in. But at the same time, you know, people still might three-bet him with, like, ace-king, ace-queen, maybe ace-jack, and, you know, mm-hmm. like, hands, like, where it's going to get pretty gross for him to, like, have to fold or call. And I think what he basically decided was his hand was strong enough that if he open-shoved, he's going to get, like, some hands that have decent equity against him that will never call because he had 20 big blinds, so a hand like mm-hmm. King Jack or King Jack, you know, they're probably not going to call him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he might occasionally get someone to call with a slightly smaller pair. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, he is going to be picking up a decent amount of chips when everyone folds. Mm-hmm. So I, I think basically that's what he was going for with the shove. I don't, I don't really think it's... I don't really think it's that bad. I think if we had a more typical, like, hyper-aggressive table, like maybe what you'd find in more, like, online tournaments, mm-hmm. I like opening to his typical min-raise more with the plan yeah. of always getting it in when he gets three-bet. Mm-hmm. If he makes it two big blinds, someone else might make it, like, four-and-a-half big blinds as a bluff trying to leverage his stack. Mm-hmm. But I just think that our table wasn't, while I'm not saying that wouldn't happen, our table just wasn't full of guys like looking for that all the time. Yeah, it was much more full of people like kind of looking to play small pots and like play post flop and whatever, which mm-hmm. is perfect because that's exactly. And I'm sure Phil Helmuth like this too. I love playing post flop. I'm like that's my you know that's I think where more of the skill and no limit hold'em is. So I love that. Yeah, but um and <clears throat> so like I, uh, you know I think his play was fine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he obviously ran into two aces, but he had kind of a weird stack given the table for, you know, to, to play that hand. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, I don't mind his play that much. Why, what did you guys think? Well, I thought I, I was having a discussion with a guy and he's from the same sort of like live sort of school with me. And where we play live, um, there's no antis in the tournament uh, in the local casino. So it's a total different ball game, a different strategy. But even in tournaments, live tournaments here where there are antis and they're coming to play, it comes down to this school of thought that, you know, the old Harrington, get down to 10 big blinds and that's when you're, you know, you're shoving. Anything bigger than that, you shouldn't um, really be shoving. But I suppose it's like what you said and something I've definitely (laughs) thought a lot more about recently is um, adapting to the situation. And I, I totally agree with what you said there. Um, if it's a table where there's aggressive people behind you and they're three bet and light, etc., then your two, your min raising or two and a half x in the eights with the thought of never folding and getting it in, so that if you do get three bet, like you're still going to pick up the blinds antes plus the guys like three bet, you know that you're you're going to come over the top of, of with the eights, um, and also if sometimes he's going to have a hand that's got equity against you. Like, if he, if he three bets you like with something like what you're saying, uh, you know, Jack 10 or something like that, he's then in a coin flip situation. So it seems to be a spot that I find myself in, even with online tournaments, early to mid position, 
um, a marginal sort of mid-strength like pocket eights or you know something like that where you don't want to raise fold you kind of don't want to raise get called and play a pot out of position and I kind of hate shoving 20 big blinds in a lot of situations like open shoving you know yeah, I mean, I think with no annies, for sure it's not right. But the annies were, like, of decent size in this tournament. I think there were still six or seven people left. So, I mean, I think, you know, he's more or less risking his stack there to win, like, three big blinds. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like uh, it's, you know, once you're w- risking 20 to win three instead of one and a half, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can never really be that bad to shove if calling ranges are pretty tight. Yeah. So... Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it actually, I don't know whether it's better for him to min raise or to shove. Yeah. I know, I know his thinking, but I also know maybe if he min raises, he can, uh, you know, try to make a good read and soul read somebody if he gets mm-hmm. three bet as to whether or not he puts it in. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, like it's, it would have been pretty tough for him to fold. Yeah. It's, I just think it's. It's horrible, and the, sort of the counter argument is to just fold or shove, and you hate folding. You know, eight. No. I, I think he was under the gun, wasn't he? Uh, I don't know if he was under the gun. He might have been the next person. I, I think yeah. there might have been one person that folded or something. I actually yeah. think that shoving is plus compared yeah. to folding. Like folding, yeah. right? You just lose zero. But I yeah. think I think that shoving is still plus EV. I mean, I'd have to think about it. I mean, maybe you could even run, run it. It would be pretty complicated with like five people behind him or whatever it was, mm-hmm. like coming up with calling ranges. And I, you know, yeah. So you know, maybe it's worth doing. Uh, I probably won't do it. I would love it if somebody did it and emailed me the results. But yeah, uh, I um, yeah, I my gut instinct there is that eights is too strong of a hand, and that shoving is plus EV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I don't know, but um, but as it is, I mean, he, I guess it looks kind of bad when you just move all in and the guy has two aces on. Team. Yeah, I think I think that sort of added to it. To be fair, on uh, Scott Siever, you woke up with two aces, and when you see that on television, it's it's easy in hindsight, as always with poker, to look and say, what's he doing, uh, shoving twenty big blinds, you know, there, but. I suppose, like you say, the antis are big in relation to the stack, etc. So, and I'm certainly nobody to to comment on Scott Seaver's play myself. But I just it was a really interesting, you know, when I used to watch uh, television poker when I first started learning, it was all you know other things. But now I'm looking at things like you know a shove of eights, like as a situation that just sort of it was so I don't know what it was about that certain spot and hand and situation. It just made me think so many possibilities with that hand. Uh, and I was, like yourself, if he, if he makes it min-raise or 2.5x, and then the table, the way that table's playing, if he gets 3-bet, it's unlikely the guy's 3-bet folding, you know, yourself, uh, Helmuth, except with the stack sizes. So, yeah, it's just maybe that the situation has is, is, is made the shove there, the EV play, the plus EV play. Yeah, the only thing I would actually say about that is, I think if if Scott was playing at a table full of like the best no limit hold'em players in the world, his play, um, unless he balanced that by shoving everything in that spot, mm-hmm. might be less plus EV because might even be minus EV just because I would assume 
you know, that's his range might not be perfectly balanced in this spot. Like I think he wouldn't shove aces there. Yeah, yeah I think he would raise it and hope to get three bet. Like uh-huh. that table. <clears throat> so I mean, if I didn't have aces, I would probably like analyzing. Like I've already basically told you, I think Scott was doing this play in this spot because he had a hand that he like thought was good enough to get all in and like, yeah. but but didn't necessarily want to raise and get three bet. So, I mean, that might affect the range of hands that I decide to call him with in this mm-hmm. spot. You know what I'm saying? If I want to make that assumption. That was um, what I was going to say. If you didn't have aces, what would be your sort of calling range there for a, a 20 big blind shove? Um, I would – it would probably be like something like sevens or eights plus. Mm-hmm. I'd really have to think about sevens. I'd probably do it with assuming that – I would assume he didn't have ace-king. It's possible he had ace-queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably call with like king queen suited, mm-hmm. um, maybe like ace jack suited, maybe ace jack uh-huh. plus. That would probably have been my calling range. So um, I I would have. I don't know about ace jack. It's tough. I don't know if he would have open shoved ace ten there, just because he probably figures he doesn't get called by. Weaker aces ever, and like yeah. stronger ace might call. So I would have had to. I might have mucked ace jack. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think like you say when someone does that, like you said, in terms of balancing, if if he does that with aces and queens as well in the next hand or the hand previous or whatever, then I sort of see it because. But if he doesn't in just a vacuum, when <laughs> someone when someone shoves like twenty big blinds, it, it, I don't want to generalize, but is it not always ace queen or a medium pair? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's hard because in tournaments in a lot of those spots, people don't really balance. It's like, how often is he going to get at the 50K final table? Yeah. Why would you balance your play? He's probably just trying to make the exploitative play. Mm-hmm. Basically hope that most of the people aren't going to really figure out 100% what he's doing. And that even if some of them do figure it out, it's still maybe better to make this play EV-wise and give away a little bit of information about his hand. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because the truth is, is that even if I know kind of more of what his range is here, I mean, the truth is that my calling range is still pretty tight, so for the most part, I'm not calling him. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's a, even the range that I said is a pretty, very tight range of hands. Yeah. So, like, I'm not, it's not really affecting, you know, my range that much. I mean, the range would only get looser if I started to think he was doing it more with, like, 7-8 suited. Yeah. <clears throat> then my range would, would way loosen up, but... My the thing is that Scott had been min raising, min raising, actually maybe opening more. You know, him and I had been the most active people, mm-hmm. so you know, I I didn't actually think because this is the first time he kind of did that. I didn't actually think that he had a weak hand this time. You know, like mm-hmm. my assumption was that his hand was probably like of decent strength, mm-hmm. um, but again, not a hand he really wanted to get through that with, at, at least at this table. So, um, you know, I. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think that balancing can be used too much, like, after the fact to justify something. Oh, yeah, like, you know, I did that because I thought maybe he was, like, balancing his range when he when he bet like that. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is that, you know, um, balancing your range is meant for really tough opponents who are going to, like, maybe figure out what you're doing. Like, mm-hmm. because you're, you know, not playing balanced or if you're playing with people day after day and like, 
again, they're going to figure out what you're doing because you bet a certain amount when you're bluffing or not, you know? Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> for the most part, I think people can get too carried away trying to overbalance and thinking about balancing when really you should just be making the most plus EV play. And maybe if, you know, someone really figures it out what you're doing because of that, you know, it could be a little wrong. But for the most part, I think people don't figure it out. So you need to be, I think you need to be careful. And by the way, this is something I think I even said earlier on this call that Phil Helmuth does, and it works out very well for him, is he really tries to make all kinds of exploitative plays all the time, like over-raising, opening for 4X occasionally. I mean, I think if you like, again, like I said, really analyze what he was doing it with, you could, you know, figure out a little bit more because I think he's doing it with like a strategy. Yeah. But the truth is, is that it's hard to figure out exactly what someone's doing when you can't see their whole cards. So, you know, unless you're playing with them day after day or a whole lot, you're probably not going to figure it out. So, mm-hmm. you know, you shouldn't waste your energy trying to balance too much. Rather, try to make your opponent make mistakes and make the best play. And then worry a little later if, oh, well, I'm going to play with this guy a bunch of times. Maybe I should, you know, be a little more careful. Mm-hmm. I think that's a much better way to approach it. So, yeah, like, you know, so my, my point being is in this spot, sure, like you were saying, if Scott were to balance his range here and then shove aces or queens. But the point is, is that Scott's not trying to balance his range so that if, you know, we play this final table through 100 times, he has the most EV by the end. Mm-hmm. We're only going to play this final table one time. So he's probably, you know, and I think Scott probably was thinking this way. He's just going to play his hand the best way possible this time and, like, maybe worry about it later. So yeah. I, I actually would never think that in this spot he has aces or queens the first time that he opened shoves after he had mm-hmm. been raising a bunch. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, and I, I think you can expect most people not to have it in that spot. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. That's, and I actually, and, I, and I'm not saying it because I think it's wrong. I'm, I actually think it's right that he doesn't have aces or queens then. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, Brian, it's absolutely fascinating talking with you. You seem to just have a way of breaking down a situation methodically. I, I find it almost relaxing or something. I don't know if it's uh, you making me see new things or reminding me of things that before that I, you know, I've sort of forgotten. There's such such good points you make. Um, you actually remind me of a sort of you mentioned Phil Lack, your good friend, who's uh, someone said you know has had a, a big influence on you, you with poker and stuff and he sort of twisted your arm to go to Brazil, you know, where you met your wife. And he's had you, a much bigger impact on my personal life than my poker, but yeah, keep yeah. going. You remind me of a sort of uh, less manic Phil, Phil Lack, you know, in the way that you're very sharp, analytical, but you're not way off, you know, in, in cool tangents. I mean, Phil's somebody I'd love to get on, you know, the podcast. But so if, if you think of Phil, I mean, he wrote an article before that made me see things totally different. It was about money management. <laughs> And the Kelly criterion. So, um, what, what's your sort of thoughts with Phil? You got a good Phil Lack story or something for us uh, to sort of end on? Yeah, uh, Phil is one of my favorite people. He's so much fun to hang out with because he's is can be kind of just manic, excited about doing things. He's just like has fun living life, you know. Yeah, he's generally a pretty happy guy. Um, but I, you know, so. Just from a friend standpoint, he's just a really cool, interesting dude that I love spending time with. But yeah, he's, uh, I would say, my actual poker 
like on the table, those had um, relatively small impact on uh, mm-hmm. me. Uh, we've talked some poker, but my relationship with him isn't super poker based as far as analyzing hands as much as like, you know, maybe with Keith. But no, he's definitely helped me a lot with like life advice. You know, yeah. he's like a more experienced than me. He's given me a lot of good advice about money management, investing my money, just mm-hmm. risk, reward, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. He's, he's been gambling for years. Like he was, you know, doing backgammon and now he's doing poker and he's just been all over the map, all over the world. And yeah. he's, you know, life-wise, you know, he's the one who twisted my arm to go to Brazil. Mm-hmm. He just kept telling me, Brian, dude, you need to go to Brazil. It's great. Like, there's, like, beaches, food, beautiful women. You just have a good time. So, I mean, you know, when I got single, um, I took him up on it and went. we went to Brazil and had a great time just, like, going around and whatever. I, I met my my wife now. <laughs> I met mm-hmm. Juliana down there. So, you know, I just kind of think of him as a little bit of a kind of <laughs> – it's it's funny like you know you think of those like kind of goofy sometimes from cartoons or something like little Taoist sages that are squinting their eyes and like saying funny things and running around but like when you really kind of they look a little ridiculous but then when you like take the whole thing in and mm-hmm. just look at the whole thing you kind of realize wow hey maybe this person's like really wise and knows what they're talking about yeah Phil kind of has that sort of uh vibe I think that like wow, he can seem really like manic and ridiculous at times, but then when you really listen to him, you can tell he's an extremely intelligent guy who has a lot of interesting and good things to say. And um, I don't, I don't know. I've, um, I just, I love having Phil around, and he's, uh, you know, he's in L.A. right now, probably with his girl, just relaxing. Who knows what he's doing? But I, I love it when I get to spend time with him. Yeah. Well, Brian, I, this, you've given me more than enough time than I expected, and um, I think you've been very interesting, and I've, I've learned a lot myself during this. Um, I'd love to have you on again sometime. Maybe if we pick up after the November 9 or something, once you got married and that, maybe contact you a few months after November 9 and maybe discuss some of the spots or something, because or, I really like the way you sort of break down a hand. Um, it would be great to get you on again or something. Yeah, sure. I mean, just let me know. I am generally pretty available. I'm. I, I we'll see how much time I have after my girl gets here, but I'm sure I could squeeze in a podcast. You know. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the the coming marriage, and hope everything works out for you. And hope to speak with you again, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barry. Okay. Cheers.